All right, well, the end has come. You can open your Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. We've been going through the book of the Bible of James, verse by verse, for quite a while. And after all this time, we finally come to the conclusion this morning. Although when you read these words, you quickly realize they don't sound very much like a conclusion. If you weren't going to see your kids again for several years, you might write them a special letter. And in that letter, you would affirm your love for them, tell them you miss them, and then you might pass on some life lessons. It's not the time to teach them math or history, but this is the time to leave them with your moral compass and with wisdom for living life. And that's kind of what James is like. It reads in many ways like a letter from a father to his spiritual children. And being one of the pillars of the early church, James, in many cases, was like the spiritual father to these scattered believers. So he writes to them, telling them how to live in a dark, sin-cursed world that is hostile to them. And James's letter is not the occasion to teach them the intricacies of doctrine. And James is notorious for not diving deep into doctrinal details. His greater concern, rather, is that they would live out the truth they already know. And he writes primarily that they would be doers of the word. Doers of the word. Now, how would you expect such a letter to end, though? I mean, if you were writing to your kids, I imagine you would end that letter by reaffirming your love for them, or maybe you'd pronounce a benediction, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you, or maybe you would pray for them. Those would all be expected and appropriate ways to end such a letter. And that's how most New Testament letters end, but not James. I guess it's only fitting that the book of the Bible with the most commands per word would go out with another command. And that James wraps this whole thing up with a final admonition to the church about how to live rightly. You can say all of James has been about keeping the believer from straying from the way of the Lord. The path of discipleship is narrow. The way is narrow. That leads to life. There are few who find it. And it's so easy to stumble and get lost and lose your way. And so... Sadly, all too many have gone astray. James writes to keep us on the right way, that we would be following the narrow way of the Lord. He exhorts us to a a singular faith, a wholehearted faith. Don't be double-minded any longer, but wholeheartedly follow the Lord. But realistically, though, James knows it's just a matter of time before some do deviate from the path. It's happened before. It'll happen again Some of these spiritual siblings, they're going to go off on their own. And so James makes his final words about them, about the prodigals or the wanderers. And he leaves us with a final word to the church about what to do with such people. How do we treat those who have, you know, left the fold, so to speak? And what is that word? It's not to judge them or to hate them or to forsake them. Rather, he tells us, go after them, pursue them, win them back. It's like a father telling his children to look out for one another after he's gone. And if any of the other siblings stray from the path, it's going to be up to the others to to go after them. Go bring them back. Try and, and win them back. They need to intervene in the lives of one another to keep one another on the right path. And so it goes for the church family. No one crosses the finish line alone. And God designed the church to be one of the key means of the perseverance of the saints. When one strays, 
It's up to the other brothers and sisters to go turn them back in love. We likewise need this mutual concern for one another with an eye to endurance. And so with this in mind, let's read now James's conclusion, this abrupt conclusion, but a final admonition. James 5, 19, 20. He says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This final instruction guides us on how to deal with those who are not doers of the word. Not all will heed James's letter. Not everyone's going to prove their faith by their works. Some just the opposite. So how should we treat such people? What do we do about such people? We're going to find the answer this morning. And specifically, I want you to see here three pictures that explain the role of the church in the perseverance of the saints. It's actually really important. That'll come together at the end with three pictures that explain the role of the church in the perseverance of the saints. And so let's start with the first picture, the prodigal. The prodigal. Verse 19, he begins and says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth. It starts with a picture of one straying from the truth. You see here, for the 15th time, James has addressed his readers as my brethren in this letter. He's talking about the household of God here. He's talking to the household of God. And as you know, in salvation, we're adopted into God's family. We become his children. And that immediately places us into relationship with all the others who have called on God as father. We enter a brotherhood, the brethren. We're part of the family now. And it's only right for us to view one another as brothers and sisters. I know many of you have told me you feel closer to your spiritual family than your natural family. The blood of Christ runs deeper. But James is clearly addressing the church family here, right? And so when he says, if any among you strays, he's clearly talking about a professing family member. And so we find the ending of James, it's not talking about the outsider per se. This is the family member who has gone astray. This is your brother or sister who's gone missing. One day at church, their face shows up on, you know, the church milk carton. They used to be a member. They used to be involved in the family life, but they're, they're just gone. They're missing. We haven't seen them. They're, they're off. They used to be part of the church, but they've gone astray. So what should we do about that? Before we answer that, we need to clarify what it really means to wander, to go astray. The word he says, planao, is the word it means to wander. This is the ancient Greek word from which we get our word planet. The position of the stars appears to be fixed in the night sky, but there are some heavenly bodies that don't follow such a path. They seem to change position. They, they appear to wander through the night sky. And the ancient Greeks called these heavenly bodies planae, meaning wanderers, we now know them as planets. They're not stars, they're, they're planets. They move differently than we observe the stars moving. Now, we know that planets actually don't wander at all. They, they follow a very precise orbit and path. But that is not true for this fellow believer. This person really is a wanderer. They're cut loose from their orbit around the Son of God. 
or Christ the Lord. He's meant to be the sun in the solar system of our lives around which everything else revolves. But this person is no longer living life around Christ. And to switch metaphors, Jesus used the same word to describe a sheep who is straying. Matthew 18, 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, planao, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? The picture of a straying sheep kind of says it all. Here's a person who is in the sheepfold of Christ. They claim that Christ is their good shepherd, that they're, they're, in, they're in his family, but they're no longer listening to the voice of their master. They're not found in the fold. They're, they're wandering far off. They've gone their own way. And the word for this is the prodigal. This is the prodigal. And can we get any more specific about the nature of their straying? Just a little. He merely says they have strayed from the truth. Strayed from the truth. And this could be taken doctrinally or morally or both. Many examples in scripture of the wandering believer who has deviated from the faith that has once for all been handed down to the saints. Jude 3, the, the doctrinal wanderer, very possible. But given James's overall thrust of being doers of the word and not merely hearers. And, and down in verse 20, he says this person will have a multitude of sins covered when they return. It seems most likely he's talking about a moral wandering. This is likely someone who has morally deviated from the truth. Now, given everything we've learned in James, it's not really a big difference, right? To James, if you wander morally, that means you have wandered doctrinally. To James, your faith is not just something you believe, it's something you do as well. And they're really tied at the hip. To not be a doer of the word is to wander. And like Galatians 5, 7 says, he says to them, you are running well, who hindered you? from obeying the truth. Not just knowing the truth, you have to obey the truth as well. And so this is the disobedient, unstable, rebellious Christian. Like 2 Peter 2.15 puts it, they have forsaken the right way and they've gone astray. Planao, they've wandered off. And I bet you know someone like this. I bet you've, in your history, you've met someone. There are some Christians who make a very sudden and intentional swerve into the darkness. Maybe they were raised in a legalistic setting where Christianity was just all rules to them. Eventually, they got fed up, and so they just, they left. They reached this tipping point where they, they turn away, and they turn hard, and they, they dive into the darkness. The, the pendulum swung to just the opposite. They now have a life of no rules, and they, many become antagonistic toward other Christians. Other prodigals are not so militant. Some instead, you know, slowly drift into the darkness over time. And usually worldliness is the culprit here, where they just love the world and the things of the world far more than the Lord and the things of the Lord. It's not like they hate Christians and they may even go to church every now and then, you know, Christmas, Easter. But, you know, if you were to observe their daily life, you'd have no idea this person was a Christian. And so in either case, we're talking about professing Christians who are now living in the darkness. And that's a real problem because the true believer, it, it's supposed to be that Christ has saved you. He has, by his work on the cross, transferred you from the domain of darkness 
to the kingdom of light. And now you're supposed to, by your new nature, walk in the light. But when a Christian wanders and they're now walking in the darkness, they're violating their claim and their master. It's like 1 John 1, 6 says, And if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That, that Christian claims to be in the family of God. They claim to have fellowship with God, but they walk in the darkness. They live in sin. And so they're lying in their claim to know God. They do not practice the truth. And their lives are, in effect, unchanged from their supposed salvation. You know, Titus 3, 3 says this. It talks about us, you know, B.C., before our salvation. It says, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That, that used to be us. That used to be the picture of our lives. The word for deceived in that verse is the same word, planao. We used to all be led astray and unrighteousness was the defining mark of our life. But the, the verse thereafter and, and following says, but God saved us. He intervened. He called us to life. He drew us to himself. He brought us to repentance and faith. He gave us a new nature. And now that's, that's no longer us. Because now we, we love him. We love his way. We love his word. We love the light. We, we hate the darkness. And that, that should be true for all of you here. If you're in Christ in your heart, you, you say that. I love the light now and I hate the darkness. And it used to be the opposite. Now, we're not perfect in practice because we still have the sinful flesh. And so every believer at times stumbles back into the darkness. But before long, the true believer will always quickly repent and just get back into the light. Go back to walking in the light. Get out of the darkness. They're not going to stay there long. But James, however, he's talking about the professing believer who they've stumbled. They're just staying there. They're just living in the darkness. And they're not coming out of it. They're living like they're still enslaved to the various lusts and pleasures of their flesh. And so we're going to ask again, what are we supposed to do with such people? They've committed to the church. They were a family member of the church, but now they're off and they're, they're living in the darkness. What do we do? Do we just turn our backs on them and hate them and shun them and, and forsake them? Or James is going to tell us, no, you, you go try and bring them back. You go after them. So a second picture, the pursuer. The pursuer, the prodigal, the pursuer. Continuing verse 19, he says, my brethren, if, if any among you strays from the truth, and then he says, and one turns him back. And the picture he's building now is so we have a spiritual family member. They're straying, they're wandering, they're deviating from the, the narrow way of the Lord. But then someone has gone after them and has turned them back. And so the, the picture of this person is, well, the pursuer. Someone has turned them back. Who is doing this pursuing? You notice here it's not restricted just to the elders who were mentioned in the previous context, but James merely references, you know, one of you, someone, one among you has turned him back. Someone from the church has answered the call to go pursue 
the wayward sinner. And this indeed is the responsibility of all family members, church family members, to to go after one another in love. And specifically, he says they, they have turned back the straying member. The word simply means to turn toward, to turn upon something. And it can be used to speak of someone's conversion, where this could be that for the first time ever, this person has genuinely turned to the Lord in, in true faith and repentance. That happens all the time. But this word could also be used to speak of the restoration of, of a wandering believer. It's like when Peter fell, Jesus beforehand prayed for him and he said, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter was going to fall. He was a believer, but he would turn. He would turn back to the Lord. And the overall picture we have, though, is clear that some professed family member is now living in the darkness. They're living in rebellion to the way of the Lord. And you know what they need? They need to be turned back. They need to return to the narrow way. And God wants the church family to be the means of their turning. Now, I understand James does not phrase this as a command to us here. He's not directly telling us here to pursue the wandering brother. But it seems like he assumes that's taking place, for he knows that is the right thing. I think James clearly trusts that the church knows the right thing to do, and he merely assumes it's, it's going to take place. And to him, it's like a foregone conclusion. That's what we can get from this. After all, if you have 100 sheep and one goes missing, you, you're supposed to go after the one, not just say, well, cut my losses, I got 99%. That's a pretty good return. You go after the one. And realize, for any straying believer, the issue is they're believing some lie. Why have they gone astray? Some lie has entered in and, and captured their heart, and they're believing it, that, you know, sin is better. You know, the way of the darkness, it's actually better. It's more fulfilling. You chase that sin, it's going to satisfy you. Your way is better. The Lord's way is too restrictive. And some lie has entered in. They've bought it. They've gone astray. And as you go after them, you, you take the same truth to them, to minister to them, to show them again the light. Listen to a familiar passage, 2 Timothy 3, 12 and following. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Here, Paul relates how the church family of God is going to be hated by the world. And at the same time, there's going to be evil men and imposters who are at work to deceive, to lead astray. And so when these two forces combine, weak believers, they fall prey. They're, they're led astray. And following the Lord can be hard. The way of the world is so much easier. And so just as the serpent deceived Eve, some will be led astray from the simplicity and, and purity of devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Instead, though, Paul keeps going. He says in verse 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned. And become convinced of knowing from whom you've learned them. And that from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so what's his point? He's saying 
to guard yourself and others from being deceived and going astray. Cling to the word, those faithful scriptures. Give you wisdom, give you life. And God's word's inspired, not just for teaching, but he says also for reproof and correction. Who's being corrected here? Well, it's the family member who has been deceived, who's gone astray. He's strayed from devotion to Christ, and you need to use the same word to turn him back. Minister to him in love and and urge him to repent and return and be restored. You can't control how a person responds, but you are just called to be faithful to pursue the straying believer. And it's only right that James assumes the church will do this and, and is doing this. What about you? Will you play the part of the pursuer in the lives of an errant family member? And if so, James wants to remind you of the great prize that awaits those who have a hand in turning a brother back. And so find a third picture, the prize. Thirdly now, the prize. We'll read the whole passage again. He says, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know. That he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so the picture is complete now. You've got a straying person. James calls him a sinner, which is that classic word for missing the mark. This person has deviated from the way. But in love, you, you show him the error of his way. You expose his fault. You convict him of his rebellion. And if by God's grace, he, he comes to his senses, and he recognizes his wrong, and he turns back to the Lord. And guess what? James says, you have saved his soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. This is the grand prize. So why we, why we would do this is just to ensure the security of the person's soul as they return to the Lord. James says specifically, you save his soul from death. And this shows what kind of stakes we're dealing with. This is clearly a reference to eternal death, not just physical death. That this sinner, by his own actions and choices, have, has left the narrow way, which leads to life. He's hopped back onto the path of sin, which leads to death, eternal death. And by the very direction of their life, they're headed for that death. It's like they're on a train and the bridge up ahead is blown out. And if they stay on that train, they're going to perish. But if you turn them back, it can be said you saved their soul from death. And this is one of the main reasons we pursue people. It's not a fun or comfortable thing to do, to go after someone like this, have that talk. Like, can I talk to you about something? It's not going to be fun. I mean, do you have a close friend or relative who has left the church or left the way of the Lord and has wandered off? They're living in darkness. And have you ever spoken to them about that? He's trying to appeal to them, not, not judgmentally, just in love to come back, to return, show them their sin, show them the way of the Lord is better. Have you ever done that? It's not an easy or comfortable thing to do. And there's great risk in that conversation you, that they will turn further away from the Lord and may even turn against you. But we're compelled. We're, we're bound. Their soul is in peril. What do you care about more, your comfort or their soul? And James adds, you'll also cover a multitude of sins. 
And surely this person has heaped up transgressions during their time back in the darkness. And when you leave the paved road and you go walking in the mud, it just kind of has a way of getting everywhere. But the blood of Christ can, can totally cleanse you and cleanse them of, of everything. His grace is sufficient. If only they would repent and return, the Lord would fully restore them. It's just like James said earlier in chapter 4 about the sinning believer. Chapter 4, verse 8. He says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves, verse 10, in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. God will restore the repentant sinner to the full joy of his salvation. And this is a glorious thing and should drive us to be the one who loves our errant member, family member enough to, to go do the hard thing, to, to talk to them about it. And if that's you, James wants you to know that you've played a part in their restoration. And really, the command in verse 20, it merely has to do with telling the faithful church member, you've played a part. They have played a critical role in God's work of reconciliation, which means you get to share in the greater joy of just participating in in God's work. In fact, I want to explore that last part further. And I mentioned this work of restoration, restoring a sinner. It's God's work, but clearly we participate. both, Both are true. And this really hits at the intersection of preservation and perseverance. I want to talk a little bit about that. I trust you know that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation, they just sit side by side in scripture all over the place. And from the divine perspective, God is completely sovereign in salvation. But from the human perspective, you are held accountable to believe. And further from the divine perspective, God says he will sovereignly preserve his own. He will lose none of his own. But from the human perspective, you are told you have to persevere to the end to be saved. These truths are both taught in scripture side by side all over. And so look, God has called the people to himself. He has sheep whom he's chosen. He knows who they are and they'll never perish. John six thirty nine, Christ said, this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise him up on the last day. And in John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me, he's greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. It's not even possible. That's preservation. But at the same time, We're commanded to persevere, where we must hold on to Christ and the faith to the end to be saved. And those who fall away, they're going to perish. It's like Colossians 1.23 says, where you display the reality of your reconciliation to God. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, you have to Stay in the faith. This leads us to some conclusions. This means that if a person ultimately does fall away, 
and never returns, that they were never truly born again to begin with. Like Judas, they were never saved. In contrast, the true believer can fall into sin and fall hard, but like Peter, they will demonstrate the reality of their faith by always repenting and returning. And this is the difference between the sheep and the goats and the Peters and the Judases. I hope that's clear. Our concern as the church, though, primarily is with perseverance. That's because while God is sovereign, we don't know who the elect are. Right? All we see are professing sheep. We can't ultimately tell who's real and who is not. And Jesus told us to expect that many tares will grow up alongside the wheat. And we really can only identify the elect after the fact. Who finishes the race in the faith? Right? Who perseveres to the end in the faith? Well, I guess they were the real deal. Otherwise, though, we don't have eyes to see God's perspective here in this life. And so it's important for you to trust God's promise and to faithfully persevere. You need to depend on his preserving power. But you have to take seriously the call to hold on to him. Stand firm in the faith. Don't fall away. It's just like Jude said in his short letter, Jude in verse 21, he tells them, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's something you need to do. You have to strive to keep yourselves in the love of God, Jude 21. But just a few verses later, he tells them, oh, by the way, God will keep you from stumbling and he will make you stand in his presence. Sovereignty, responsibility, preservation, perseverance, all all over, side by side in scripture, these complementary truths. But I want to talk to you about the intersection, where they seem to come together. Now, I want you to think about this question. How does God preserve his people? He does. The Bible says he does. We cover just a few of those verses, but how does he do it? How does God ensure that his chosen ones will not fall away? It's like by magic, or does he use means? The Bible teaches he uses means and instruments to ensure that his sheep will never ultimately perish. And one of the most significant means of God's preservation is what? The church. The church. And this brings us back to James. This is James's contribution to this whole you know, doctrine in scripture. And we learn from James how God intends to use the church to keep the sheep in the fold and on the way. So I really want you to see the importance of this. You know, back to verse 19. James refers to the, the straying sheep, the, the wandering, professing believer. And he says, if you turn them back, you save their soul from death. But that's obviously God's work, right? We, we can't really save anybody. We don't have that power. He also says, you cover a multitude of sins. We don't have the power to forgive anyone's sins. But James phrases these as if there are our works, but we know 100% in scripture, these are God's works. This can only then be taken in one way that James is merely showing instrumentality. He's saying that when you intervene, you are functioning as the instrument in God's hands by which he delivers his rescuing grace to his people. And that's what scripture teaches all over as well, that God does the work of saving and rescuing 
the fallen. But he uses means, and James is highlighting, you're supposed to be those means. The church is supposed to be the instrument of gathering the lost sheep. Jesus taught the same thing. I've referenced Matthew 18. Listen to the longer part of that passage. I'll read again Matthew 18, 12 and following. It says, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. And then he says, so it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Listen to that. God has sheep. He's chosen them. He's called them. And it is not his will that any one of them should perish. And God, in fact, will sovereignly keep them from ultimately falling away. That any wandering true believer will be restored. But how will God do that? How is he going to keep them from falling away? How will he bring them back? Well, the answer comes in the very next verse in Matthew 18. The same context, right after that, Jesus said this. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. We typically read that in a context of church discipline. But the the real context is church restoration. The church is God's instrument of pursuing prodigals and winning them back to the truth. And it's not just for elders. If you see your brother's sin, they're straying. They're living in the darkness. They're not repenting on their own. Well, you go show him his fault in private. Reprove them. Instruct them with the word in love. You call them back. Now, of course, if a person perpetually refuses to listen and repent, they are removed from the church. In reality, they're removing themselves. We are after them because we love them. That They're going to remove themselves by their own deeds, their lack of repentance. They're making clear they don't want anything to do with Christ or his family anymore. And their true nature is revealed. Because all genuine born-again sheep, they're going to come to their senses. They'll eventually hear their master's voice, repent, return, and be fully restored. But the point is that that God has deemed to use the church to be the means of his calling sinners back to the way that they would not perish. I'll show you another verse. If you're in James, you can just flip backwards to Hebrews 3. Just the previous book, Hebrews 3, verse 12. The author of Hebrews says in verse 7 of chapter 3, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he brings up the example of Israel's wilderness generation. That they were given the words of God. They saw the works of God. But that generation was wicked. And God himself said of that generation in verse 10, he said, They always go astray. Planao. They always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. And so God said, therefore, in his wrath, they would not enter his rest. That entire generation perished. They fell away because of unbelief. And the author of Hebrews brings this up just to make a simple point. 
don't do that. Like, don't be like them. Don't follow that example. Don't fall away because of unbelief. And he says right after verse 12, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How do we do that? How do we ensure that not a single one of us has an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God? We're called to do that. How do we do that? The next verse, verse 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. See, you you have to persevere in the faith to the end to be saved. But the deceitfulness of sin threatens the sheepfold like a wolf. And so we, we need one another to encourage one another daily that we may not be deceived and go astray. The same is taught in Hebrews 10. You can flip there. Hebrews 10, another familiar and critical passage. Hebrews 10, 23 through 27. Very similar. He says, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So look, the author of Hebrews understands, even if you've made a profession of faith, if you're living in the darkness, your soul is in peril. You are headed for destruction because you have betrayed your confession. You're not living your confession. And his point again is that don't be like that. The day is drawing nearer and nearer and it's close. You just have to hold on a little bit longer. Hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Don't give up. How do we do that? It's a dark world. It's a difficult world. But the answer again is in this passage, the church. He tells us, move one another to love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Pray for one another. Hold one another accountable. Whatever you do, don't forsake the assembly. You see that? You know, stick with the family. Make sure you attend the weekly family meetings. Because that you're going to derive the encouragement you need to endure from the family gatherings. Don't forsake the church assembly. You know the old hymn, Come Thou Fount. You sung that verse. You know it. Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You know, those words are a sad but true confession of all of us. You know, in the weakness of our flesh, all of us are prone to wander and to leave God. And then you add in temptation, suffering, and trials. It becomes real easy to wander and to leave God. This is why all the more 
we need the church. Because God is designed to place there in the body the encouragement that we need to not wander. To say, you know what, that's not a good idea. I shouldn't do that. I don't want to do that. The truth has reminded me not to do that. Now don't forsake the church. Listen, we, we care about you at this church. We care that you are here at our family gatherings, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, special events. But it's not for the reasons you might think. You are not just a giving unit. And we don't really care about the, the badge of honor of church attendance. Like, you know, how many people are at your church? Who cares? This is not a competition. But this gathering is about so much more. One of the primary values of our family time together is this encouragement. We're talking about strengthening the faith of one another that you might endure. Jesus, he really is Lord. His way is life. He, he really is returning. And you just need to hold fast this assurance firm to the end. You can't do that alone though. Your flesh is too weak, so is mine. You need us. We need you. And from Jesus to Hebrews and back to James, he's stressing the same point. It's the vital role of the church in the perseverance of the saints, which is really God's work of preservation. Various trials, James said, will afflict us. But you know what? Some people will not count it all joy. Some are weak. They're losing. They're failing. They're straying as we speak. And their soul may be in peril. Who's going to love them enough to go after them? To speak to them in love, to encourage them, and to call them back. You be that one who pursues them. If you see someone in the family adrift in their faith, they're doubting, they're back to living in the darkness, speak the truth to them in love. I know it's easier to say nothing. It's even easier to say, hey, look, if they're really elect, they'll come back anyway. But don't be so foolish. Do not realize God has likewise sovereignly ordained to use faithful believers like you as the means of them coming back. You just do your part and you step up and you partake in this work. And if you're here this morning and you are the one straying, well, come back. I got to tell you, if you're experiencing spiritual depression or weakness, the absolute worst thing you can do is distance yourself from the local church. Because in the church, God has placed all these means of grace for you to grow, for you to be encouraged, for you to hold fast each and every day, each and every week. The, the worst thing you could do is forsake the assembly. I know that's what you want to do when you're depressed, but just fight it. Come close. Draw near. Dive into the family life of the church. And don't just wait for people to come talk to you. You go talk to someone. You build a relationship. Go to the events. Go to the prayer meetings. Just get invested in the life of the church. And when you do that, you are going to see God supplying you all the grace and the strength and the encouragement you need to grow and to do so with joy and to endure. You do that. We do that together. And then we'll all be able to sing the song as a prayer. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. 
prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And know now that God will answer that prayer through the church. So let's be together. And let's pray. Our good God in heaven, you are so faithful to us. To call us, to make us your own, to redeem us in Christ, to to give us the gospel, to bring us to new life. Transfer us from the darkness to the way of light. And we thank you for your your grace and mercy in saving us in Christ. But Lord, we know our hearts. We still have the the sinful flesh. We are prone to wander. We we confess it. And we know that the more we stray, the more we we go toward the way of the world, that the further we get from your word and your people, we wander. But I pray you bring us back, Lord. As you have promised, we can count on that promise. You won't lose us. You'll never let go of your hold of us. We can take encouragement from your preserving power. Uh, But we must stand firm at the same time. And and we know now that you've deemed your church, just the body, everyone in this room, the one and others, to be your means of keeping us in the fold from falling away, for enduring to the end. And so I pray we take this call to heart and just invest in the lives of one another. The church is to be not a social club or an organization where you pay dues. This is a family. This is a spiritual family family of God. And so may we just commit to this family, be a part of the family. We will by that derive the encouragement we need because life is hard. Trials are various and we need to be reminded each and every day and to press on, not be deceived by sin. So build this body together, unify us in the spirit in Christ. And then as we grow, may we give you just heightened worship and just hold on together until Christ comes. His coming is near. And may we hold on until then. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.